This is mission.org. This is Marketing Trends, your number one source for exclusive interviews with chief marketing officers and executive marketing leaders in the Fortune 1000 and beyond. This is Jeremy Bergeron, and I interview, collaborate, and partner with world-class CMOs and marketing leaders across industries. Your content is at the heart of what you do. It connects your company to others, teaches them, guides them, and inspires them. But creating, managing, and editing content at scale is often very chaotic and difficult. Empower your content teams with Brightspot Content Management System, made specifically for marketers and corporate communications leaders. No more waiting for a developer to have to piece things together. Put the power to create and deliver powerful yet complex digital experiences into the hands of your marketers with a comprehensive suite of ready-to-use tools and functionality. Bring a bright spot to your tech stack, your customers, your team, with the Brightspot content management system. Visit brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to learn more. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Marketing Trends. I am really, really excited about who we have in the virtual studio today. Um, I want to just mention a few things about this epic human being because she has done and continue to do some really impactful things on the planet. I want you to please welcome Rachel Conrad, the chief brand officer for the production board. Now, the production board is a really interesting company that builds and invests in businesses using science and tech to do things like decarbonize the earth and fix our public health crisis, right? Uh, Before she joined the production board, Rachel spent years as the head of comms and marketing for Impossible Foods, overseeing internal, external comms there, a lot of visibility there. Um, And then let's see, she spent five years as the head of comms and marketing for the Renault-Nissan-Mitsubishi Alliance, reporting directly to the CEO. That's the world's third largest car group. Then before that, Rachel spent a few years at Tesla, reporting to Elon Musk in Silicon Valley as the company began producing cars through the launch of the Model S sedan and in Europe. Uh, Rachel is... Johns Hopkins University fellow in international journalism, degree from Northwestern University. She serves on a few boards. Um, I don't know how she has time to do all the things she's doing because she's literally fighting crimes against the environment and saving species from extinction. In addition to all that amazingness, Rachel also loves hiking and has a cool German shepherd named Molly, which we talked about. So Rachel, (laughs) welcome to Marketing Trends. So stoked that you're here. It is great to be here, Jeremy. Um, I'm a huge fan of marketing trends. And I want to thank you for having me because I know the vast majority of your guests are Fortune 50, Fortune 100, Fortune 500 CMOs who have a vast empire and billions of dollars of discretionary spend. Uh, That is not my case in the world of startups. So uh, it's always really interesting to listen to, um, you know, Morgan Stanley CMO and, Coors CMO. I mean, it's a very different world from the one that I've inhabited most of my career. Mm. Well, thank you. We're honored. Super excited. I mean, the 
you know, the intention that you set, you know, and the world that you're in is, I think I find it really important and very fascinating. And so I want to get into the production board and get into your really cool background uh, for the audience and those people who just don't know about the production board. Mm -hmm. Will you please just describe the company and then what do you do there as the chief brand officer? We build and grow businesses that will have a disproportionate impact on humanity in positive ways. Um, we are reimagining major systems of production across agriculture, medicine, human health, manufacturing, materials science. And we are building companies that can really have a transformative effect and, and reshape Earth as we know it. So the companies in the portfolio, just to give two examples that are very consumer-friendly, include uh, Supergut, which is a human health company that literally has taken the most cutting-edge research on sequencing uh, DNA, right, and has applied it to the gut microbiome and created a suite of products that are easy to use, you know, bars, um, fiber blend, and um, a shake that really transforms your gut microbiome and helps everything from type 1 diabetes to weight management, even helps stabilize your mood, makes you sleep better. Um, it's a really great product. Um, another company in the portfolio of the production board is called Canna. Canna is this incredible company uh, named after the place near the Sea of Galilee where Jesus allegedly turned water into wine that can literally transform water from your tap into hundreds of thousands of different beverages. It's literally the closest thing on earth to the Star Trek replicator. Um, and um, that company helps you eliminate some of the one or two trillion cans, bottles, and glasses that the uh, manufacturing beverage and bottling manufacturing complex produces every single year so that we don't have to continue living on a trash heap. So those are just two. There's you know more than a dozen in the portfolio in various stages of, of existence. Wow. The production board's an amazing company. Um, the CEO and founder is this brilliant guy, uh, Berkeley-trained astrophysicist named Dave Friedberg, who really um, is profoundly influential in the world of food and ag tech. He created the first unicorn um, ag tech company. It's called the Climate Corporation and um, controversially sold it to Monsanto for $1.1 back in the day and then um, started the production board uh, in order to continue to have um, a really big impact on, um, on our civilization and our planet. Wow. It's just epic. I mean, you, it's... It's like, you don't, it's not just one. There's, oh, you, know, you said over a dozen yeah. of these really interesting businesses yeah. that are out to make a really big impact. Um, I'm just curious about kind of your approach to these brands, you know, individually and then collectively. They're all, you know, they're solving interesting problems. They're, there's momentum behind many of them already. Um, but what is kind of your approach to supporting these brands in 2022 as we're heading into these economic headwinds where a lot of brands of all sizes are cutting their budgets, they're yeah. flattening their budgets, you know, they're looking at ways to scenario plan and do more with less. What's your approach in working with some of these brands? Because the mission, the things that they're doing, it's so important. It doesn't need to get quieter. It needs to get louder. What's your approach there? How do you support these brands in this way? 
Well, I mean, you said it best. One of the most important things I do is that I come in and I help the CEO and founder and the the team, the C staff team, you know, which is usually at these early, early stages, incredibly scrappy, right? I help them articulate their big, bold mission, why it's important, and what you're doing to improve the planet, right? Um, you know, the really important thing you have to remember about startups is that they don't, they don't have any budget at all for marketing. Don't even think about cutting your budget, right? I mean, that is so incumbent industry kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. These companies don't have any. I mean, I work with seed or series A stage companies. They're not about to hire a chief brand officer, a chief communications officer. I mean, heck, they're not even getting agencies or hiring a director of comms, right? Um, so in the production board portfolio, they have, they have me, right. And again, I, um, most startups do not hire a, you know, head of comms brand marketing until your series C, D, E, Mm -hmm. something Mm -hmm. like that, right. You just can't afford it. And so I can help them get, uh, get really up to speed quickly on how to frame your narrative, how to build it. Um, I've done everything from, you know, talking points and press releases and all of the sort of nuts and bolts of comms and marketing all the way through to a full rebrand um, of Supergut. We, um, the CEO of Supergut, a great guy named Mark Washington, he and I did a full stack rebrand earlier this year of Supergut um, with the agency Tiny Wins, shout out to Tiny Wins. Um, everything from packaging to website to the name itself. And we did this all in about four months, right? So the great thing about startups is you can work really fast Mm -hmm. and you can have a really, really big impact on the incumbent sector if you do it right. So uh, that's that's my job. That's that's my approach. Mm, Okay. I need to read something out loud from your LinkedIn bio, which I want to know more about this because your LinkedIn bio says, post-national guerrilla warrior with demonstrated track record for creating the friends, enemies, and evangelists who fuel global mainstream mass market movements on the right side of history, unapologetic exploiter of capitalism to solve humanity's biggest problems, global warming, biodiversity collapse, and our public health crisis. This might be like the most memorable LinkedIn profile that I've, I've read <laughs> in years. But talk to us a little about how, you know, a one-time English teacher and journalist finds her way into the tech world and ultimately becomes this this post-national guerrilla warrior, as you put it. Okay, wow. Yeah, um, I described my life in a couple of sentences. So yeah, I, I <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, you should know this about me. I'm from Detroit. I was born and raised in Detroit, right? Ah. My entire family is in the automotive industry. I am a real student of the industry. I'm fascinated by it. In fact, one of my first memories growing up is getting um, running out of gas in my dad's Plymouth Volare during the gas shortages of the 1970s, which completely racked and ruined Detroit in many, many ways, right? Um, we in Detroit didn't get the message that you needed to be fuel efficient, right? Because oil was free. You just keep pumping it out of Saudi Arabia. But whoa, lo and behold, that all stopped uh, during the OPEC oil embargoes and starting in 1973. And uh, Detroit was completely then eclipsed by the Japanese invasion, right? With these small fuel efficient cars and really never really recovered, even to this day, right? 
And so my upbringing was to see this huge incumbent industry, this lumbering industry that's totally beholden to big oil, um, completely go into a downhill spiral, right? And so anyone who grew up in Detroit in the 70s and 80s and 90s knows that it really was a downward spiral for much of the second half of the 20th century. And so uh, even as a girl growing up there, I obviously couldn't articulate it like I am now, but you could really get this visceral sense that hitching your fate to a big, vile, gross polluting incumbent industry is really no fun, right? My dad was always being furloughed or in danger of getting furloughed. And, you know, we didn't really know if we were going to have to move. And, you know, we always had these awful cars that would stall. And, um, you know, it, it really was an important lesson to me. So that's kind of the backdrop, right, to then growing up. Um, started learning a lot more about climate change starting in college in the 90s, right? Um, you know, back then we had this relatively radical vice president named Al Gore who wrote Earth in the Balance. Man, that was a real seismic moment for me reading that and starting to learn more about the, uh, you know, obviously anthropogenic encroachment of, of global warming and so as a journalist, um, I went back to Detroit and I started covering the rise of uh, the emergence of these fuel efficient cars, right? Starting with the Toyota Prius, but also the GM EV1, wow. um, these experiments that the big three were doing in electric cars. And, um, you know, I was really interested in it, but um, it was really then in 2008 when I decided um, I'm sick of journalism. I needed a needed a change. I had done that for about 13 years. And so I decided at the time I could probably have a bigger impact, not just objectively chronicling history as a journalist, but going inside of a company that could really, really have a radical impact. And so I got this job offer. I kind of sounded it with some of my mentors. They all said, we've never even heard of that little company. Don't, why would you even bother? Don't go there. That was of course, Tesla. Um, on my third day on the job, the company was absolutely in free fall. Elon swooped in, fired a third of the staff. And I was reporting directly to him in this role of, you know, senior manager of communications, which by the way, I had never done before because I'd come from <laughs> journalism. Wow. So man, it was a nail biter every day. You know, this was 2008 was Carmageddon, right? I mean, this was the middle of the yep. Lehman Brothers financial liquidity crisis. Both General Motors and Chrysler were bankrupt. Mm -hmm. Ford had accepted this big government loan. And it was really probably the worst time to start a company, let alone a car company, let alone an electric car company. It was really, really dark days for the entire industry. And um, so to be at the time, you know, reporting to Elon, trying to figure out how to get the funding, to get the support, to get the sales, to get this company off the ground was absolutely incredible. It was uh, like getting an MBA every single day. It was terrifying, but it was you know, incredibly formative to how I think about comms and marketing and brand, especially. Um, and I still, to this day, you know, uh, the fundamentals of how I operate today were really grounded in those um, almost three years at Tesla. Wow. Yeah. Cause you were, you were there for, 
Yeah, three years. And you know, well before, you know, as you mentioned, you were there before the juggernaut it is today. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. What are some of the things that you you learned while working for such an impactful company during that transformative period? What's some of the things that you still pull and draw from today? I mean, so I, I think the first thing that you have to learn when you're at a company like Tesla in a you know death spiral back in two thousand eight is bias to action. You have to iterate every single day. You, if you go to a hundred different um, venture capitalists and they all reject you because you're not a potentially good investment for them, you never know. Maybe that hundred and first person might might say yes. And even if all of Sand Hill Road, you know, the epicenter of the VC world, says no, then try something else. You know, Tesla was really, in many meaningful ways saved because of a $485 million federal low interest loan that really got the company through the very darkest period. And then Elon got a $50 million commitment from Daimler, you know, Mercedes owner, and then a $50 million commitment from Toyota, which is literally nothing in the world of the auto industry, but it made the difference between making payroll or not wow. at Tesla in the darkest days. And that's what it took, right? So we're now in a scenario out here in, you know, years later that feels very similar, right? Doors of Sand Hill Road are really closed shut to a lot of new funding, especially for high risk capital intensive projects. And you just can't say, you just ne never say die, right? You just keep, keep moving, keep trying to get funding, including revenue by any means possible until you can get through to, to brighter times, right? To more favorable economic, macroeconomic conditions. Hmm. So as you think about, reflect on your time with Elon in those formative, you know, three years, those transformative and formative three years, what did you observe in in kind of what he was cultivating? Like, what was he cultivating personally? Like, who did he become over those three yeah. years from your perspective? And then who did you become over those three years? Oh, I love the way you ask that question. That's really interesting. Um, okay, so I am not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I don't pretend to be able to divine anything uh, unique about, about Elon. And again, I worked at Tesla from 2008 to 2011. And it was a scrappy startup that relatively few people took seriously. Um, when Elon now looks back on his, you know, early days as CEO of Tesla, he says he was going through a nervous breakdown. Uh, I can I can attest he 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 might have been doing just that. I mean, it was really really difficult times, right? He invested his last. $45 million or something after his PayPal windfall into Tesla just to keep paying the, the bills, right? And the most important thing I learned from Elon during that period was that mission matters most, right? Um, you know, Elon told me very early in my tenure there, he told me, look, Rachel, the odds of Tesla even continuing to exist are are probably five, maybe 10%. Like the odds are overwhelmingly in favor of our catastrophic demise and humiliation. But in fact, if we don't try, the odds of the incumbent automotive industry ruining 
the planet because of excessive, you know, carbon are a hundred percent. So we might as well try, you know, we got nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's been something that I really think about at all of the companies that I've worked for, that there is something much more important than the survival of the company or even my role within the company, but it's the survival of the species and the flourishing of the planet. And if you have a company that has a mission that that is that powerful, then, you know, my God, you and all of the other employees will do pretty much whatever it takes to keep it moving forward. And again, I haven't worked for Elon in more than a decade. I don't pretend to know who the guy is now. He's obviously become the world's richest person, right? Mm-hmm. So I presume he has evolved quite a bit. But if he even retains a modicum of that mission orientation, he is still a force for good in the world. And what about you? What about Rachel Conrad? What did, what, who did you... What did you cultivate in yourself in those few years? So what did I learn during that period? Um, obviously, you know, number one, never say die. Keep trying um, all the time. And number two, the mission matters most. If you have a company that can seriously talk the talk and walk the walk with a hardcore mission to reduce the land, water, and energy footprint of agriculture or to deliver a 10x improvement in human health to significantly expand lifespan of, you know, of an individual human, then that needs to be your North Star. You need to frame your mission above everything else. You don't need to spend billions of dollars on Super Bowl ads and, you know, stupid golf sponsorships and stuff like that. You actually need to spend time and resources on educating consumers as to why your mission and hopefully your product is superior to the old, vile, gross polluting, high carbon products that it replaces. That was my key takeaway at Tesla. And that is something I have just continued to exercise and refine throughout the the subsequent 10 or 15 years. Wow, that's awesome. I mean, the the... The skill set and just the character traits that you have certainly developed even before, during, and after that time is is beyond impressive. And, you know, you could have taken your career like a lot of different directions, right? I'm curious, like, when did you have this kind of elusive aha moment, right? When you knew that your kind of brightest future would lie in sustainability and environmental causes? What was that moment? Yeah, I don't think that there was really an aha moment. In okay. fact, I would actually argue that whenever people come to me like, oh, now that I've spent 15 years at a giant investment bank and I've been making millions of dollars a year, now I want to give back and get this C-suite role at Impossible Foods or Tesla. I'm like, you're such a joker, bullshit. You know, like you needed to be doing this in the day, right? If you're really committed to it, it's something that is intrinsically woven into your psyche that, you know, like I mentioned in the beginning, like it's something that I was brought up really understanding that if you um, are in an industry that is in bed with big oil, um, that is, has zero regard for the planet and human health, then, you know, you, you can't suddenly have an aha moment, right? I can't even tell you the number of 
people I've interviewed over the years at dozens of, you know, of different, for different roles who say, you know, now that I've turned 45 or now that my children are in middle school and they're starting to do reports on the environment, now I'm going to go into sustainability. And I'm like, really? You know, I, I cannot believe that people haven't been really passionate about this issue for, for so long. I mean, we have been dealing with anthropology anthropogenic global warming since the 1980s. And there's been so much detail about what we need to do to solve this late stage cluster of global warming, which is basically, you know, decarbonize um, energy, transportation and the agriculture industry, right? Everything else is a bit of a rounding error. And so, you know, if you can't seriously come to me and, and explain and repent for your past in another industry, then, you know, I'm going to be a little skeptical. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So basically, you know, I didn't ever have an aha moment. This has always been something that is mm. building. I never took a left turn at age 40 or 50 or whatever, you know, crisis people go through. Um, it's always been something that's guided me. Oh, that's great. Yes. Yeah, I like clearly wove it into your experience, your upbringing, the things you witnessed, the impact that, that that an industry was having on the planet, and then how you were able to, yeah, make choices to attach yourself to these really cool missions. And that led to another cool mission and has led to other cool missions. It's like you really, you value the mission over other things. And that's, I think that's clear. I'm curious about just as an aside on decarbonization, because I'm, I'm, I'm a nerd about this stuff too. I saw there's probably various data out there, but there was something called the Brookings Institution that said achieving net zero by 2050 is technically and economically feasible. Um, is that the same kind of numbers that that you're seeing from the production board side? Is that is that a is that a fair assessment to say we could we could be there by 2050, or do you think sooner? Do you think later in terms of decarbonization? I mean, I have no visibility into into that. I think you'd have to have a crystal ball for that. I yeah. Um. I mean, over the past year, especially, I've become a little bit depressed, to be honest, around um, climate change. I don't think that it's a problem that we can solve. I think we are now deeply, deeply in a moment of hopeful mitigation, right? Mm. I think that even by the best estimates, we are not going to be able to reverse climate change, um, to reverse global warming. And therefore, we need to not only decarbonize as much as possible, but reshape the world for an inevitable era that includes you know, more wildfires, more difficult crop cycles, more typhoons and hurricanes, that kind of thing. It's, it's, it, it makes my, my job and my mission, my passion even more uh, intense, right? But we are not at a point, we're long past a point where we can somehow return to these halcyon days of, you know, full, you know, full biodiversity, that kind of thing. I mean, mm. you know, just to put this in perspective, just since I was born about in 1970, 70% of the earth's biodiversity has been destroyed. 70%. Millions of species, huge tracts of, of wildlife have been completely destroyed. It's horrible. Yeah. And 
we are now in a place where the entire web of life itself has frayed to such an extent that, you know, my old boss, Elon, really believes that one of the only ways to ensure that Homo sapiens itself, the species, isn't completely obliterated is to make Homo sapiens interplanetary by colonizing Mars, right? And I, I don't think he's wrong on that one necessarily. I don't necessarily think that, you know, I need to live on Mars, but I want to I fix Earth, right? Mm-hmm. But, but mm-hmm. I do share his sense of urgency um, and, and his concern that we are now in a, in a stage where whether it's because of global warming or a nuclear war or uh, an asteroid hitting Earth, whatever, there is a place where we need to acknowledge now that in order to make uh, Homo sapiens as a species survive and prosper, we actually can't continue to rely on planet A anymore, right? Um, mm. We got we to gotta develop some other coping and mitigation mechanisms. Wow, that's huge. I mean, it seems like for decarbonization, it's going to require enormous you know, behavioral changes rigorous new policies, a, you know, international cooperation, among other things. When the businesses that the production board is 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 seeding and, and involved in, are there those that are also, yeah, supporting those things like behavior change or, you know, the policy side of things or more international kind of partnerships and strategic? Is that, are you seeing some of these businesses show up to fight those those good fights? So, you know, I just laid out a framework for being morbidly depressed. But the reason why I'm not completely suicidal, right, is because there is also a scenario for um, optimism um, amidst a mitigation kind of context, right? Like it is clear that, you know, global warming is a thing. We need to move into a context of mitigation and coping, right? But at the same time, when you look at the very, very long arc of human civilization, right, a couple hundred thousand years, um, we have been at a similarly catastrophic point, which seemed like an existential crisis. And we have not only gotten out of it through human innovation and ingenuity, but we've actually moved into an era of, uh, you know, much higher you know, much, much higher quality of life, much better planet, much better world, um, especially for our species, right? And I can give you a few examples. I mean, most recently in the 1960s, there was this book called The Population Bomb. And there was this serious vibe in the 1960s that was like, human civilization itself has gotten too pervasive. And there's this Malthusian time bomb ticking, and we are all going to get obliterated back to some previous Stone Age because we need to decrease the population, right? Well, in fact, this guy Borlaug thought of this new way to feed the world with um, very, very interesting new varietals of, of grains, and the population increased dramatically as a result, right? Um, similarly, in the 1800s, we thought, oh my God, there's no more guano. We can't feed the world anymore. Population is going to starve. Similarly, during the Black Death period in 1300s, 1400s Europe, we thought that, you know, a third of our, our, you know, our fellow humans died, right? And we thought that's it for, for Homo sapiens. 
But in fact, in each of those cases, there was this incredible flourishing of innovation that not only solved the problem of the plague or famine, but actually enabled a huge proliferation of our species and an improvement in our quality of life. So the optimist inside of me says, we need to get to that point again, right? Mm. We need to get to a place where we can live in abundance, you know, a post-scarcity society to quote uh, Star Trek, right? We need to be in a place that looks significantly different, but that preserves our species and our quality of life, right? Mm -hmm. I, I reject this whole concept that you brought up that like we need to reduce our impact. We need to go back in time. Like that just has never happened in the, you know, hundreds of thousands of years of human civilization. It, it is one of inevitable advancement of, you know, unfathomable upgrades to, mm -hmm. to our life that also makes this species much more efficient. Mm -hmm. And so there, there is reason to believe that we could not only get out of uh, this current late stage problem with global warming, but actually live better, differently, but better. So mm -hmm. from my money, I want to work for companies. I want to spend my time at companies that share that vision, that are kind of achieving it. Because without that, my God, it's it's just so depressing. You can't you can't move on. Mm. So yeah, it's like so far, you know, humans have found a way. You know, it's like let's hope that we will continue to find ways, right, to to be here and live here, and yeah, like how you said, in different ways, but actually have it be better too, right? I mean, it can be both. So Rachel, what would what advice would you share with someone who's new in their career? You know, perhaps they're in marketing or comms or branding or some variation of that. But look, they're entering into a, a really interesting world, right? No matter what industry you're in, this is so much rapidly shifting and changing. There's so much, you know, vying for our attention. But what would you share with someone who's early in their career? Okay, I love this question because about once a quarter, maybe twice a quarter, I I speak to students, whether it's at Stanford or a virtual the Harvard Business School or something like that. And um, it's very clear to me that the um, you know under 30-year-old generation, let's call them, are very, very aware that the defining issue of their day is global warming. And obviously, you know, they wanna they wanna be part of of, of the solution or the mitigation. And, and I love that. So I would say to all of the people who I don't get a chance to talk to in these classes, you should all be part of this, right? You know, I actually think if I look back on my career, the most satisfying part of it is the understanding that I am spending as committing as much of the time as I have toward my, you know, working hours to fighting the biggest existential threats of our time, right? That is so much more rewarding than any amount of money or stock options or, you know, Conleone awards or anything like that. It's really what gets me through the worst meeting or week or quarter or year is that, you know, I am actually a positive good on the planet. I am spending my time in a way that is potentially really high impact, right? And so I would actually advise 
everybody listening at any stage of your career, but especially if you're young, to really think about what are the biggest problems facing our planet. Hint, hint, it's probably, you know, carbonization, biodiversity collapse, and public health. Um, And then where is your native interest aligned? Right. For me, obviously, the decarbonization angle is really huge growing up in Detroit, but maybe for other people, it is, you know, you, you, you're thinking about being an architect or something like that. And so you can align, you know, your interest in architecture with, um, you know, the need to make carbon negative cement or something like that. Right. So I, I would actually urge everyone here to think about what are your native skill sets and interests. And how do you mash up those against the biggest problems that we face as a civilization? Because that is where you're going to get the highest impact, the highest job satisfaction, the most career advancement, and frankly, have you know the best possible impact on civilization as we know it. I can't add anything else to that, Rachel. That's phenomenal. And I agree. If we can all zoom out no matter where you're at, you know, no matter what industry, no matter, you know, where you, what role you have, what title you have, where you're serving. If we could zoom out and think, wow, how could I begin to, yeah, to just shift some of my energy, some of my attention into actually supporting this, this beautiful planet we live on. So I, I love that. That was a great mic drop moment. And Rachel, just thank you for being a part of this amazing community at Marketing Trends. I mean, we get to talk to some great human beings and you are epic and the stuff that you're doing at the production board is so important so we're just big fans of it we're going to be staying connected for sure with what uh you guys are up to um but just thanks for being a part of the show this was such a great conversation and we really appreciate you being on marketing trends thank you so much this was absolutely fantastic it was super fun and i i hope it was worthwhile for for at least a couple of people listening You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, The messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.